of the Army Health System and the sustainment logistical system. It seems like uh, every time I go to Warfighter that the biggest logistical challenge ultimately becomes movement of casualties um, because we no longer have the opportunity to um, have ultimate... Hi, I'm Chris, and welcome to this week's episode of To Be Published, a podcast that provides organizational leaders with the tools to integrate and synchronize sustainment and to generate combat power. The views and opinions expressed here are our own and do not reflect the views and opinions of the Department of Defense, the Combined Arms Center, or Army University. The Army is transforming how we fight, and we're preparing to fight and win in large-scale combat operations against peer or near-peer adversaries. The change in the operational environment is templated to involve a higher amount of casualties, including mass casualty events, and changes in the way that the Army Health Services are provided. Today, to discuss medical support in large-scale combat operations, we have Major General Michael Place with us. Major General Place is the commander of the 18th Medical Command, where he is currently the senior medical officer in the Indo-Pacific and leads the Army's theater medical infrastructure. Sir, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. Thanks. Uh, Do you have any opening comments you'd like to share with our uh, listeners? Uh, Well, I I guess probably... um, guessing most of our listeners don't know who I am. So why don't I start there? And, and the topic that at least is most near and dear to my mother is, is me. Um, I, I say that because my, my brother is also in the military, as many of you know, he's Lieutenant General Place. He's the director of the DHA. So if I can claim that, then I'll, I'll be mom's favorite. And uh, that, that'll be good for family reunions down the road. Uh, so I, I come from South Dakota. I'm a native South Dakotan, uh, uh, born and raised there. Uh, and kind of accidentally ended up in the military uh, through ROTC. I was uh, went to ROTC at Johns Hopkins. Uh, went to medical school there at Uniformed Services University thereafter. Um, and then I guess for most of my career, uh, spent compared to at least my medical corps colleagues, spent a fair amount of time in operational units. I was the Ranger Regimental Surgeon back in the day. I was the Division Surgeon in the 101st. Um, commanded a 10th Combat Support Hospital when we went to Afghanistan, um, just after the surge there. Um, spent some time in Iraq with the 101st. So uh, been around, uh, done this for a little while, and uh, you know, think in my current position as the Commanding General for 18th MedCom, have some insights in, in what uh, the future holds for uh, the Army Health System in, in combat medicine. Awesome. Well, again, uh, thanks for joining us. And so we'll get to the future, uh, but I'd like to talk a little bit about the past uh, as we go on. So over the last 20 years, um, we've learned a lot about tactical casualty care. Uh, We've learned in in Iraq and in Syria and Afghanistan, uh, and we've been able to reduce combat mortality and loss rate significantly. Uh, With the focus shifting back to LISCO, what changes do you expect in the operational environment uh, and how do you see some of those roles of care being redefined? Yeah, well, there's there's a lot to unpack in in that question, quite frankly. Uh, let's let's start with um, tactical combat casualty care. Uh, I'd like to say that you know it's all about the medical folks, but it's it's not actually. Uh, much of our survivability has got to do with the kinds of injuries that we've had, which is related to Kevlar, 
so both the, the Kevlar vests as well as helmets and, and some of the other things that we've done to adapt there. The, the use of eye protection. Uh, there's just been a whole number of, of things, material solutions that we've brought to the, to the battlefield that have resulted in a change in the kinds of injuries, uh, more extremity wounds as opposed to more penetrating trauma. Uh, that's not to say that, that folks don't get hurt. Uh, our actually, injury severity scale, uh, our measurement of how badly someone is hurt, is it is consistently increased throughout uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. So IEDs tend to do that. They, they mess you up pretty bad. Um, so th there's been good news and bad news. Some of that's the material solution does make a difference. But uh, at the end of the day, there's still things that we have to do differently. And we, we've done some of those. So the joint trauma system, as an example, to help us actually learn and codify the lessons that we've learned from managing trauma. Um, rediscovering the use of whole blood, it's been a, a game changer for us as well. And then there's been some other trauma-specific, medical-specific things that have, we're doing differently, like the use of TXA um, to, to help the clotting cascade. And so for all, all of those are, 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 are great things that have happened over the last 20 years that are really responsible for the increased survival rate. Um, I, I would also offer the uh, the the point of injury care has been a big piece of that. So our medics are better trained than ever before. And their ability to help people survive the initial few minutes has made the difference to get them to casualties, to care, uh, surgical care in particular, but in a timely fashion that resulted in a lower fatality rate. And I would imagine uh, the proliferation of air medevac, the speed that we can get somebody from the point of injury uh, to that surgical care also plays a, a pretty big part. Yeah, for surgical yeah. trauma, it's it's very clear that you can cut it off wherever you want to, but faster is better. It just it's just faster is better. So um, if, if you, you know, have a surgical case that happens right outside a, a, a trauma center, then your odds of survival are better than you know rural South Dakota, and you have a, a combine accident. You know what? Your odds are not good, my friend. Uh, it's just the way it is. So, um, yes, the sooner we can intervene, the sooner a tourniquet be, can be put on to stop the bleeding, the sooner a surgeon can, can ligate a bleeding artery. And so all of those things help. Uh, so faster is better. Um, I am, as you've probably heard, not a particular proponent for the phrase golden hour. I don't think that there's any science to that. I don't think that there's um, any reason to say, you know, 60 versus 30 versus two hours, all the rest. Um, but we need to start just thinking faster is better. And so if all of us you know, are combat lifesavers all the way through surgeons uh, in that whole chain of care, all of us doing it faster, better is going to result in better outcomes. And so with that, uh, when we look at large scale combat operations, you know, we're expecting uh, more casualties and a higher volume and more at one time, right? That mass casualty rate. Now, can you talk to us a little bit more about the operational environment from a medical perspective? What do you see it looking like in large scale? And what's the difference between COIN and LISCO? Well, so in COIN, we dominate all of the domains. So you can decide whether or not you want to proceed or not, just based on your analysis and your, your ability to know is much higher. It, it, doesn't take a, a genius to figure out if if cyber is going to be contested, you're not necessarily going to have all the information you're going to want to have. Electronic warfare, same thing. It, it's going to disrupt your ability to sense and to understand, and quite frankly, it can have 
inserted false information to make it even more difficult. Um, it's not new in warfare. I think of Patton's tanks in, in England as a, you know, a classic example. It, it's the same thing, except in a digital age, there'll be digital messages that are going to, to obscure the truth. Uh, misinformation, disinformation will be part of the environment. So um, for, for all of us, knowing is going to be hard. Um, but moreover, to your, to your point, really, for medical folks, the, the distributed nature of future conflict, the, 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 the tyranny of distance uh, for, for what we're talking about is going to be huge. Uh, brigade combat teams spread over large areas. In, in Indo-PACOM, where I live and work right now, uh, just the, the enormous distances involved. Uh, Europe, the continent, fits into the South China Sea. So when you start talking about those sorts of sizes, you're not going to just kind of run over and check on something. It just doesn't work that way when you have th those kinds of distances involved. So I, I tell people that, you know, with modern technologies, with GPS and satellites and intercontinental ballistic missiles and, and smart munitions of all kinds, medical folks can expect to have simultaneous, multiple mass casualty events across enormous distances, which is a huge challenge. Much of our ability to provide the care that we do is based on bringing together collections of capabilities. Um, so it's not just doctors and casualties in class eight, but you also have for those that are seriously injured, nurses of different kind. You have operating room technicians, operating room nurses, ICU nurses, uh, medical surgical nurses surgeons, general surgeons, orthopedic surgeons, neurosurgeons, thoracic surgeons, all of these things come together. So we do a lot of centralization of skills in order to achieve effects. When you're talking about distributed operations with large mass casualty events, you can't do that anymore. It's a huge challenge for us then to get all of those resources together at time and place to be able to meet the demand that we're going to have from casualties at a time and place not of our choosing. Um, so you mentioned warfighters, sir, and I was wondering if you could share with us any of the lessons uh, that we've learned as it comes to LISCO um, from these warfighter exercises. So from my point of view as a, as a medical guy, I just say really it's, it's the integration of, of the Army health system and the sustainment logistical system. It seems like uh, every time I go to warfighter, that the biggest logistical challenge ultimately becomes movement of casualties um, because we no longer have the opportunity to um, have all domain dominance like we do during counterinsurgency operations. So that means we can't necessarily fly a, a medevac everywhere we need to go or have sufficient capacity in the medevac system to be able to fly there, pick everybody up and leave. In large-scale combat operations, it's not going to work like that, particularly for the, the spaces that we're talking about. Uh, so what we found is that we have to be able to move casualties the old-fashioned way, uh, which means the resurgence of ground ambulance companies and how that they get planned and executed in the battle space. And then non-standard casualty evacuation. So every logistical train that goes forward 
needs to come back with casualties. That's the only way you're going to be able to clear the battle space. And while it may not have a medic on every one of those, in fact, shouldn't have a medic, otherwise we'll bleed out all the companies that are forward, we, we need to move casualties back to medical facilities, which are not going to be right on the, the forward line of troops. So we have to relearn that. We haven't done that because we haven't needed to do that in counterinsurgency, but we're going to have to do that. That's going to be compounded by the, the enormous distances. I think we're going to have to relearn or change our doctrine or re, relearn our doctrine that all of those combat trains that go forward need to plan to pick up casualties from the medical elements that are forward and deliver them to medical elements in the rear before picking up more supplies and people and taking them back forward. And until we start rehearsing that routinely, we will be challenged uh, to clear the battlefield in a, a timely fashion. And I think there's room uh, in that discussion for some uh, tactical innovation. Uh, you know, right now our, our primary, at least in the armored uh, forces, our primary means of transportation is the palletized load system or, or PLS or LHS, the flat rack. Uh, I think there's some room for tactical innovation out there of how do we move casualties using a PLS or an LHS as a Kazovac platform. I don't know that we have an answer, and I think the answer is probably going to come from a specialist or a sergeant out there in, in the field. And so as we look at innovation, you know, there's room uh, to grow. So if anybody's got any ideas, let us know. Uh, we'll work to get it into the system on, on how we can sort of standardize that and improve it. So all that kind of leads into, um, at least in my mind, uh, something you had said earlier where that first initial speed is better. That first initial uh, care is so critically important. Um, what about prolonged field care? What is that and, and why is it important in LISCO? Uh, or, or what do you think about how do we sustain a patient uh, from the point of injury while we work to transport them those large distances back? How does that happen? So I think definition of terms are, is appropriate here. So prolonged field care, um, I think it's thrown around a lot. Um, prolonged field care, if you're saying that we're going to do tactical combat casualty care, and then before we prepare to transport a patient to another location, that we reassess and make sure that all of our interventions are working, that we've provided pain control and antibiotics and so on, and then are going to await evacuation. If that's what you mean by prolonged field care, then I'm 100% on board with you. I think the, the, the practical definition of that experience is prolonged casualty care. So taking tactical combat casualty care and simply extending it over time. I think that many people conflate prolonged field care with that, prolonged what I'd describe as prolonged casualty care. But if you think prolonged field care is to learn new techniques, new um, new capabilities. So a medic who now knows how to manage a ventilator or a nurse who now knows how to do, I don't know, chest tubes. If that's what you mean by prolonged field care, learning new um, skills, uh, I think that that's not likely to be helpful, quite frankly. Um, because number one, they're going to have limited opportunities to expose themselves to that. They won't have sustainment training. It's very difficult to do that. I'll, I'll tell you as a family physician, uh, you know, I, I have to be prepared to put in chest tubes in combat all the time, right? That if you have any kind of injury between your pelvis and your clavicles, 
you, you deserve a chest tube if there's any kind of penetration there because we don't know where the, the fragment went and oftentimes it goes into the chest. Okay, so everybody gets a chest tube. Well, in my clinical practice, as a practicing physician, in a decade, I think I put in one, right? And, and that was a special circumstance emergency room and we knew he needed to have one and the other people were there, but because I had done one a long time and wanted to do it, I was able to put in a chest tube. It was a big deal, right? Well, the reality is that we have to be able to do that a lot. So to think that a nurse then would be able to do that, can she do it? Of course she can. It's not you know, physically difficult to teach someone how to do that, but to be proficient at it and know how to manage that over time for a long period of time, days, that's a whole other game. So I think we got to get away from the idea that we can educate ourselves to be able to do better in the battlefield. I think what we need to do instead is become highly proficient at tactical combat casualty care at each of the levels, whether you're a, a non-medic, whether you're a medic, whether you're a doctor, nurse, PA, whatever, whatever your skill set is, to do those TC3 tasks that are critical to survival for your patient. I think we're better served. I have, to, I have to put one caveat on that, though. I, I do think that prolonged field care will be helpful for certain parts of our force. So special operations forces in particular, I think there's a, a, a need for that. Uh, whether you're a, a SF, a Ranger, a SOAR guy uh, or gal, or are in the SFAB or a multi-domain task force, you, you will be away from the regular army and the standard resources that we build into support brigade combat teams and so forth. So in those circumstances, there's probably some need for prolonged field care. Um, and then we have to enable that with technology for telehealth in a bag or some sort of virtual critical care, some way to be able to reach back and talk to experts to kind of walk you through it to make sure you're doing the right thing. Because um, in medicine, just doing something doesn't always end up being helpful. You got to know the right thing to do and how to manage it after you do it. So again, prolonged field care and um, prolonged casualty care, a distinction in my mind with a difference. But really prolonged casualty care, I think what you're describing along with what the Chief of Staff of the Army is, is describing is getting back to basics, doing the things that we do well uh, and doing them better, not adding new training, like you said. Uh, and so to me, you know, some of the lessons that we can keep from the last 20 years. We're not, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater uh, when we switch from coin to Lisco. Uh, lots of sustains. And, and I think if I'm hearing you correctly, sir, that that tactical casualty care uh, is still critical to saving life. And we still need to practice and rehearse it and become experts at it uh, at the basic level and combat lifesaver all the way up. Yes. Uh, you know, in Perhaps for my generation, the thing that I am most proud of as a, a medical person is the the capturing the lessons of tactical combat casualty care from where it started uh, back in Somalia, no kidding, and then and now has come through the special operations community and then into the, the general force. If we made any significant contribution to medicine on the battlefield, it's TC3. It really is. Um, but I'd also add that there's a couple other things. We, we learned that the human domain is where wars are won and lost. Okay? There's all kinds of great technology in space and, and cyber and all the rest. But when it's all said and done, 
humans are the decisive factor in war. That's why we have war. It's the contest of wills among humans on how we're going to, to organize ourselves and with what resources, all, all the things that we fought since, you know, the caveman days, right? Um, but the other fact of this is that, that wars are fought and won on land. Um, General Flynn, uh, the USERPAC CG, ha has a comment that he says from time to time that um, last time he checked, you know, th th there is nobody who's living on the water. Now, you could say, okay, there's some people that live on boats and that sort of thing. But, but the fact of the matter is people live on land. And even in Indo-PACOM, where there's a lot of water, when it's all said and done, the, the part that matters the most is the land. And for that, you need an army. And... America's got a pretty darn good one. Yeah, I agree. Um, so we've talked about a lot of the challenges in the scope. And so I'd like to spend the next couple of minutes discussing how the Army health system is structured and that structure is changing uh, to support large-scale combat operations. So we're in the largest uh, transformational period of our Army, uh, really since the early 1980s, uh, when we switched to the Big Five and we switched to Airland Battle. Um, so starting from a medical perspective, starting from the top with your organization, the MedCom Deployment Support, Medical Command Deployment Support, uh, how is the Army structured to support that large-scale combat operation, and what changes are we making to do it better? Well, so for one, and probably most importantly, well, yeah, actually not most importantly, um, we're going to make the name a lot easier. So instead of being Medical Command Deployment Support, it's going to be a Theater Medical Command um, which kind of rolls off the tongue a whole lot easier and, and kind of sounds a little bit like a theater sustainment command, which is our, our, our sustainment counterpart um, as we kind of, as the Army Health System branches over both sustainment and protection in terms of what we do for the force. Um, so it, naming convention wise, that's coming and that, that will make it easier for everybody to understand what it is that we do. Uh, but I'd go one level higher, actually. Um, Army medicine is under enormous transformation right now and has been over the last few years. Uh, we can talk or not talk about the Defense Health Agency as a combat support agency and what it's bringing to the fight. Um, but it is a fundamental and transformational change of Army medicine, which uh, has led the MHS, the military health system, uh, for a long time in terms of uh, all things healthcare delivery. So no longer being a, a primary mission of healthcare delivery is a fundamental change. With that, we've had a bunch of restructuring that we've done. So our MRDC, medical readiness, medical, yeah, I can say it. Um, research and Development Command. Medical Research and Development Command. Thank you. Um, I was trying to say MRMC at the same time, and it didn't work. Um, so MRDC going to Army Futures Command the Medical Center of Excellence, AMED Center and School, now being part of TRADOC, um, as well as Army Medical Logistics Command falling under AMC, those, those are huge changes to the medical enterprise. Um, no longer having them all centered under the Surgeon General and MedCom Commander, uh, which is, I think, a good thing for us, quite frankly. It has allowed us to focus on what it is that we do uh, with, at the certain general level with policy and resourcing and so forth as a DA staff officer, as well as being responsible for the, the assigned personnel within medical command. But it also integrates us much better with the Army. 
Uh, and I think right now for what we are facing with large-scale combat operations, that integration is helping Army medicine be better. It's helping the rest of the Army see the resources required and how to best use medical resources on the battlefield. So lots of transformation at the strategic level um, going on right now. And, and I think all of those are, are for the good, quite frankly. We're also transforming uh, beneath that strategic level at the operation. We've we've not just changed the name uh, of combat support hospitals uh, or caches, right, to, to the field hospital, uh, but how are we enabling that support uh, sort of above the BCT, but beneath that theater medical command? Yeah, so as a former combat support hospital commander, difficult for me to watch them go, but, um, but, Yes, it's important the field hospitals under the hospital centers uh, to have a 32-bed capability that can be mobile on the battlefield is incredibly important. Uh, if you go to any of the warfighters and see how we fight now, it is really interesting to have ability to have surgical and patient holding capabilities that is, relatively speaking, mobile on the battlefield. Um, in days gone by, they drop on the ground and, gosh, it, it, is, it takes an act of God to, to pick them up and move them for all kinds of reasons. Um, so having the organizational design to be capable of doing that, along with some of the technological enablers that are coming online now, that are really going to be a difference maker. Hospitals, by their very nature, are huge consumers of energy. They are huge consumers of clean water. They are huge consumers of you know, all kinds of things that have weight and cube and are just hard to provide on the battlefield. Blood that has to be, you know, cold chain supplied and all the rest. Those are all difficult tasks. Only made harder by large scale combat. Oh yeah, because of the yeah. volume that you have to go with. So it just compounds the problem. So having the ability to overcome some of those logistical challenges while being more mobile just changes the battle space completely. Not to say that we're not going to have challenges with that, but it, it, the capabilities are going to be, they are organizationally now, but as the rest of those things come online, I, I'm, I'm very excited about what that's going to mean to our ability to maneuver on the battlefield, which has not been a strength of Army medicine in the field for a long time. So can you expand on some of those technological enablers? So you mentioned uh, power, you mentioned water. Uh, those are two of the hardest things that, as a logistician. Uh, we have to move, right? Cube, weight, et cetera. Liquid logistics is, is generally pretty hard in itself. Um, can you explain some of those? And then are there any other technological revolutions that are coming online uh, that may transform Army Medicine a little bit yeah, more? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think there are some, some capabilities that are being tested that uh, alternative power sources is an example. Um, if you can uh, power a, a hospital as an example, um, and not have to have diesel fuel to burn through, you know, trucks at a time. Um, just complete game changer. You can just tow it behind you and go anywhere and set up and be operational. That that's that fundamentally alters the game. Uh, for water, I'll defer to you guys in terms of, of the the standard drinking water and so forth. But um, we've recently had MRDC come up uh, with a, a technique that can provide sterile water for IV fluids, um, can use any water source to do that. 
So instead of having pallets of IV fluids transported around the battle space, you take the machine, you drop a hose into liquid somewhere, and it squeezes out and fills a bag of IV fluid for you. Now, again, it, to do it at scale and all that sort of thing is another challenge, but, but at least theoretically, as long as you have water, you can have IVs. Well, that's a game changer. So there are a number of innovations like that that are on the way. And then we can go completely, you know, geek out on the IT side. Um, I, I keep telling folks, look, look, the technology exists right now. If we take a squad radio and have a medic talk through what they're doing on their primary survey, just like they do for EFMB and all the rest of it. So they say it out loud so that, that we can see what they did. Well, voice recognition software can take that and actually build a field medical card so a medic no longer has to write anything down. And that field medical card can go to the platoon leader, company commander, battalion command, and they can see real time where the casualties are, have uh, decision support tools built in to recommend triage levels, re recommend evacuation, so that decisions can be made to appropriately resource the battle space in, in terms of medical. Uh, all of those are those are technologies that exist right now. They're not hard to do, and folks at, at Tatric are, are are working at that within MRDC. To, to no kidding, make those a possibility. I, I go even further. I say, look, why can't we do you know Google Glasses or something like that that can do facial recognition? So I no longer even have to do search to figure out who the casualty is. I already know, right? The, and that automatically then populates their electronic health record. Again, all of those things are real time available to do. And from then a, a logistician's point of view. RFID and you know barcode, I, I can predict consumption rates real time because as I do those things, the, the glasses can see me applying a tourniquet. Well, I'm not getting that tourniquet back. So guess what? I need another tourniquet. Then have for medical evacuation, uh, we have drones that can lift people and can supply with class eight coming forward, can take casualties back for a, a network enabled uh, system. So think of a FRSD, a surgical team that when they quote unquote pop their tent open, they are now networked and now the network knows where they're at. So that drone can do an assessment of all of the surgical facilities that are within range and go to the one prioritized based on the capability. See what I'm saying? All, all of that is reality right now. All of those technologies exist. We have to just simply put them together into a, a system to make that work. So we don't have it all right now, but I'm telling you, all of these things are real or near-term realities for us that are going to be possible and will be experimented with and brought online within this next generation. That's awesome to hear. Uh, taking care of our, our troops and our soldiers that are out there. Uh, and also from the joint side, really any casualty, whether it's a soldier or a sailor, a Marine or- Yeah, so let me, let me talk about that for just a second. Um, common misperception that th this is an army fight. And while the army will fight, I, I, I remind everybody, particularly from where I sit right now, that, that we're gonna fight as a joint force. It, like, no kidding, it will be a joint force. Um, and for army medicine, the, the joint force is really all of the medical people. So we'll have army personnel supporting you know, Air Force, uh, you know, Agile combat employment as they do their distributed operations and so forth. So there may be an army medical team supporting an air force command someplace in a small island in the Pacific. 
it will work like that. None of us has enough of all of the things that we need to be able to do all the things we want to do everywhere we want to do them. So particularly for medical folks, we go where people are and there's not enough of us to go where all of those are. So we're going to have to do some area support missions, which means you're oftentimes going to find yourself working for the Air Force or the Navy. And, you know, we will do it well because we always have. But but we, we got to recognize that up front. It will be a combined joint task force. Wherever we go, whatever we do, we will fight together, um, which we, we got to talk in that language. Um, none of the services can do it by themselves. We need the, all of us. Yeah, I agree with that. Coming from a soft background, you know, soft has always been inherently joint. Uh, and so I totally agree that we have to rely on each other's strengths and weaknesses. We have to rely on, on each other's capacities. Uh, and that's the way the fight will be. Yeah, I, I would, I'll give you a, a historical example that I think really brings this out. Uh, General Brown, uh, you know, gave us some reading when I was out there before when he was a USERPAC CG. Uh, I think the Solomon Islands, uh, I was fortunate enough to go to this as part of senior service college at the Eisenhower School. I uh, got to study the battle in depth and it, it, I hadn't looked at it in terms of multi-domain operations at the time, but with the advent of multi-domain operations and going back and looking at it, it's remarkable how in World War II with land, sea and air, the, the three domains at the time, if you had one of those, you were losing if you had two of them, you were winning. But it wasn't until all three of them came together that we won Guadalcanal. Very interesting to think of it that way. If you add in space and cyber with that, what does that mean for future battles? It, it, so it's, it's one of those little learning labs, if, if you look at it that way. Uh, I think very instructive as we look forward. And the fact that it's Navy, Air Force, and Army all working together to achieve something together um, you don't want to just be winning. You want to win. And it's going to take all of us to do that. Absolutely. So switching gears uh, to building combat power, to building readiness. Uh, how does the Army health system and really the DHA, the Defense Health uh, Agency, how does that enable the readiness of soldiers on the front side? What are some things that we're doing as a medical community? And maybe you just maybe it's beyond medical, uh, to prepare soldiers to fight and win physically. And in my mind, uh, the first thing that I go to is, is sort of holistic health and fitness. Yeah, so that, that would be the Army's kind of version of that. What, what I talk about it more of, that, that is a component, but it's really a warrior mindset. You, you have to come to the conclusion that you are a warrior, uh, whether you see yourself that way or not, most, most people don't, most soldiers don't, particularly when they first enlist or, or you come in and get commissioned and so forth. They, they don't see themselves as a warrior. They, they see themselves as, you know, I sign up for this, I have obligation. Okay. Um, but what you want to get to a point where they see themselves as dedicated to being the best soldier they can be, which means they're, they're, their mind inherently disciplines themselves to think through and get better at what they do professionally, which has implications physically for how we're doing things like holistic health and fitness. So strength and conditioning coaches and injury prevention and all of those sorts of things, but also the mindset of how do I lift becomes important. How do I, you know, 
qualify on the range? How do I learn how to do this, that, or the other thing as part of it? How am I working on my warrior task and battle drills? How am I really preparing myself to be successful in combat? Because that crucible is unforgiving. If you're not prepared for it, you're not likely to return. So I, I think that's part of it. So um, how do we ad adopt that mindset, all soldiers? Granted, there'll always be a transition period to, to, to accept that perspective and learn to live army values, those sorts of things. But, but how do we instill that mindset into every soldier? Uh, for me, it starts with saying that I'm a professional athlete. I may not be an elite professional athlete. I may not be in the NBA or you know the NFL or anything like that or Major League Soccer, but that doesn't mean I'm not held to a professional standard that I'm not paid to exercise, I'm not required as part of my employment to meet minimum standards for exercise uh, and physical performance. So if it starts there, then if I accept that I am a professional athlete, then I have to do things to prepare myself properly. And so all of those come together. I think that's part of, of what Army Medicine facilitates. Um, we, we, we don't lead that. Our, our professional leaders, our professional warriors, our line colleagues are the ones who have to drive that, but we enable that by having the right kinds of skill sets available. Um, so that's behavioral health folks for learning the warrior mindset. It's the strength and conditioning coaches. It's the physical therapists. It's it's uh, all of the wellness people that go ahead and enable that. And then for those who get injured or have diseases and so forth to to help them get through whatever, the surgery they need, the rehab that they need to conduct to get back on the field to resume to be the best soldier that they can be. So uh, I see there's a huge role in that for all of the, the um, health enterprise, the entire military health system, Army, Navy, Air Force, doesn't matter. Uh, that's what we do for the force. I don't think that will ever change. That's, that is where we start as we conserve the fighting strength. We, we bring all of those resources online to enable uh, individual soldiers and then collectively to be prepared to go to combat. That's an awesome way that you've described that, sir. And I really appreciate that uh, description. So I've got one more, sir, and this is, I don't know whether to include this or not. Uh, in doing some preparation for, uh, for this interview, uh, I was reading that we, as part of our assumptions, our underlying assumptions, are that China and Russia will honor um, the Geneva Conventions and not uh, attack our medevac platforms. Uh, and with the advent, this kind of ties in a couple of things, with the advent um, of these anti-access anti area denial systems, we're, we're able to shoot down our medevac helicopters and deliberately attack from outside of visual range our ground platforms do we think that there's a high risk of the enemy confusing our platforms and they just see helicopters and not medevac helicopters so i think our systems um or systems that are available for both us and ad potential adversaries um can detect helicopters um but simply because it, it's a helicopter, you're not gonna know what it does. And so the Red Cross on the side is irrelevant if you're out of visual range. So intentional or not, um, I, I wouldn't 
try to or purport to know the motivation for why one would would fire on a particular vehicle like that without positive or negative identification. But I think it's a very real possibility. Um, it, it may be that at some point we have to review what those laws of war look like. And uh, on the modern battlefield where um, some of the more traditional or standard um, thoughts on how one is able to distinguish uh, medical versus non-medical aircraft or equipment and all that sort of thing, um, we, we may have to alter some of those things so that, I don't know, that a, a, a a field hospital, for instance, has to have a, a uh, friend or foe ID to, to say this is a hospital. And so for all those dig digital signatures, everybody knows that. It, that so that, those sorts of ideas are, are probably going to have to come upon us pretty quickly here. But yes, I, I think there is certainly risk involved. One of the things that I talk about for large scale combat operations for everyone is that 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 acceptable risk will be different. It will probably be higher. We're willing to accept more risk because it's not going to be knowable and you're going to have to make decisions very, very quickly without verification and so forth. So I think it would be um, ill-informed to think that all of those, those medevac helicopters or medical units could somehow be identified up front um, as in be distinguishable from, you know, their non-medical counterparts. So that being the case, uh, I, I think we're going to see some of that, particularly at the advent of large-scale combat operations. And that may well cause the international community to, to try to update some of those. Uh, it'd be better if we did it ahead of time, but I, I don't think anybody wants to, to, to tangle that or take that on. Um, without being forced to do so. So much like the conventions as they've been written have been after, I think that's probably what we're going to have for a new digital conflict. That's an awesome way you've described that, sir. I really appreciate that uh, description. Uh, so this pretty much wraps up sort of the formal part uh, of this podcast here. I want to thank you, sir, again, uh, for joining us and talking to us about your work. But before I let you go, I'd like to ask you a few more questions uh, to help our audience get to know you a little bit better um, and provide some mentorship, any advice that you may have. So first, uh, what book are you reading or have you read recently that you'd recommend uh, to our listeners? So I'm going to give you three. I'm kind of a book guy. So um, some of you probably are familiar with Ghost Fleet. Um, I, I just read that for the first time. I've had uh, several people recommend it to me and, and finally um, finally picked one up and, and read through it. Actually, since I do a lot of flying these days, um, it, was, it was a quick read, got through it, I think actually a, a one trip out and back. So um, not, not a, a hard book, but very insightful. Right now I'm reading Your It, um, an interesting um, book about leadership, uh, particularly at the strategic level, um, to understand how one deals with crisis. Um, and how one leads through crisis. And another book uh, a friend of mine gave me, which I, I find absolutely fascinating, um, is Anthrovision. Um, so it's really anthropology-based. Uh, it just talks about uh, anthropology in, 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 in new IT, um, the understanding of 
how people work with systems or understand people and the cultural norms and so forth and how that affects IT. I think that's really a fascinating subject that I got I to gotta learn a lot more about. Yeah, sort of as a technophile, I think I'm going to have to pick that one up and uh, add it to my, my reading list there. A second question, a favorite movie. So favorite movie, you know, probably more than people need to know, but it's Dead Poets Society. It'll always be Dead Poets Society. It was the first date I took my wife on. So um, yeah, it, favorite movie will always be Dead Poets Society. Awesome. Awesome. And then if you could tell your 20-year-old self one thing, what would it be? Um, <laughs> probably to be patient. Um, I, I've, I was at 20 years old, not patient. Um, I was probably not very kind as well. Um, I, I've come to figure out that, um, that kindness is free and people respond much better to kindness than not. Now there's a time and a place for direct feedback and that sort of thing, particularly direct negative feedback. But most of the time, I think we're better served to uh, do some more understanding before we do the directing, commanding, or um, having that kind of negative interaction. I, I found that more often than not, people are involved in doing or, or trying to do what they thought was the right thing. Um, and remarkably enough, the systems aren't designed to give us what it is what we're looking for. So it's not a person problem usually, almost always, it's a systems problem. Um, general Schoomaker, the former Surgeon General, used to say that our systems are perfectly designed to get the results that we get. Um, so if we're having a problem with what we're getting out of the system, perhaps we ought to look at the process and the system that we created and redesign that as opposed to telling the people that they've done something wrong. I, I think that's really helpful in dynamic times like we're having now, that it, it's not a people problem in terms of people wanting to do the wrong thing. Um, and that so often leads to confrontation and emotional exchanges and so on. Most of the time, it's a problem of not understanding the system. And for leaders like me now to have to change the system to get a different result. Um, so to be kinder to people, to be a little bit more patient, to ask the questions, to understand um, without reacting uh, is what I would work on with my younger self. I, I, you know, I don't know if one can just tell oneself to do that um, differently, but I, I think perhaps uh, I, I would have needed more than a talk. I, I need a full mentor for a long period of time. So I, I think those mentors that I had that um, helped me see that in myself and hopefully made me better in that regard over time. Patience, kindness, mentorship, mentoring down now that you're in the position you are. Some impactful, impactful words. Again, sir, thank you for joining us. Thank you for being on. As always, uh, this has been an episode of To Be Published. Thank you for listening and uh, we'll see you again next time.